Welcome to the story as we continue our journey through the Word of God and how your story intersects with God's story. The Bible is like a mural that tells a single story, and our journey is about helping us understand how what God is doing is related to what is going on in your life and why you are even here and how you can be a part of what God is doing on a global scale. This morning I want to talk about the idea that God's promise is greater. His promise is greater than your problem. And we're going to see this from the book of Daniel. Now, with the book of Daniel this morning, you have just seen the the video clip, and you've seen two of the most well-known stories probably in the Bible. Um, Almost any type of church is going to teach these stories in their kids' uh, programs. And these stories are, they're great, they're awesome, they they show the power of God, um, but there's something more going on. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We're actually going to take um, a bit of time to unpack the book of Daniel, and we want to see uh, the, the history behind it, how, how it fits into the historical context, and also the canonical context. And by that I mean, uh, why is it in the Bible? You know, the Bible has 66 individual books written by over 40 different human authors to, to God's inspiration and in, in, intending them uh, to write what they write. But how, how are these um, related to each other, and, and why in today's case is the book of Daniel in there? What does it contribute to the storyline of the scripture? And so these are the things we want to look at. And then, of course, lastly, we want to also see as far as what does this have to do with you and me today, because this was a long time ago. And so the, the storyline of the book of Daniel is where we want to start this morning. The storyline. Up to this point, repeated attempts by God have been made to get his people's attention. And and those attempts have failed. He's not gotten their attention. You know, maybe you understand this. Maybe your your parents have have tried to get your attention with something multiple times, and it just isn't working. And so what has to happen is they escalate the attention getting. So, you know, um, as as a young kid, maybe that gets to, um, you know, spanking or timeout or or maybe as a teenager, grounding. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get your attention, and they're trying to correct a problem. If you don't pay attention, it escalates. That's kind of like with law enforcement. You know, they might give you a warning the first time. You know, but the second time or the third time, it's probably not going to be a warning. Each time it gets progressively worse. You know, you might go to jail. Jail is short term. It's not prison. You can't be in jail for more than a year. More than a year, you go to prison. And then even prison has levels. You know, the, the highest is the maximum security. That's where, like, the worst offenders are supposed to be, right? And so, again, this whole system of what do we have to do to get your attention? That's what's going on here. God has tried to get their attention for hundreds of years, and it has not worked. The splitting of the kingdom into two did not even get their attention. God has repeatedly, you can see in the, in the map of the divided kingdom here, he's repeatedly tried to get them. It's been divided over 200 plus years, 20 kings. How many good in the north? Zero. No good ones in the north. All right. 20 kings in the south. How many good? Eight. Okay. So all these kings, 40 different kings. Okay. The prophets have come on the scene. They have tried to get the people's attention. And it is not working. The, the next
next image shows you this divided kingdom aspect and how these the 20 kings in the north and the, the 20 kings, they just all evil. And then the bottom one is the eight good and the 12 that were evil in, in the south, which adds up again to the same uh, 20. And so during this time period, <clears throat> the judgments of the northern kingdom that did not wake up the south, God had hoped that when the Assyrians, okay, look at the Assyrian Empire on the screen. We talked about them. The Syrians come on the scene, and God sends the northern kingdom off to Assyria. They're exiled. They're deported. The empire of Assyria, by the time we get to the book of Daniel, has diminished to the point that the Babylonian Empire is now the world power on the scene. So with the Babylonian Empire, you can see on the, the map here that um, there's supposed to be uh, purple, um, but it's not on our screen. So uh, we got a color correction problem here. So the Babylonian Empire has basically, on this screen, you can basically take all the stuff that it looks white. Um, they basically controlled everything uh, below what looks like this greenish area here, this, this here, everything below. So they have all of this is controlled by Babylon. They, they've taken over. Okay? The Assyrian Empire, like every empire of the world, will not last. They had their heyday, and now they've been diminished and deposed. And the Babylonian Empire is on the scene. The new king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, he controls the ancient Near East. Him and his military machine. The Babylonians, I just want to say a few words about this. Here's a picture of Babylon up on the screen here. I actually have a few of them. Um, right through the middle ran the, the river, the Euphrates River, through the town. And this river is actually going to become their downfall. The Babylonian uh, Empire, okay, when you got to the city, you know, imagine these Jewish people going into exile. When they get there, the walls of the city were 300 feet high. They were 80 feet thick, and they went 35 feet below ground. Okay, they didn't have the cranes we have today. You see them, you know, doing work and construction up here on 50, and you see those huge steel beams and the crane is up there with this massive like, jackhammer thing, pounding them in. If you live by them, you hear it nonstop while they're pounding these beams into the ground. Th this wall was 35 feet below the ground to make sure that nobody was going to dig underneath and get to them. Well, that's not how they ended up getting taken out eventually, but we'll leave that for later. The Hanging Gardens of the World, one of the seven wonders of the world, were built by Nebuchadnezzar. He had palaces in the desert. The guy was a massive builder, magnificent. The Temple of Marduk, this is the, the massive, most important temple in the city. There was this whole, like, it wasn't a highway, but this decorated street that, read, that led right from the city gates to the Temple of Marduk. It was one of 53 temples in the city. The gold image of Marduk in the table weighed at least 50,000 pounds in this temple. Marduk was worshipped like none other in Babylon, a place of paganism. There's a couple more pictures here you can see of, of the, the Babylonian uh, place. You can see the walls there. You can see um, that you have to go across this bridge to get there. So the water was actually a protection for them. 
And then you can see the, the temple on the left side there, the temple of Marduk. <coughs> the seven wonders, the hanging gardens. This is an artist's rendition of, of that beauty of the hanging gardens of, of Babylon. But that was, that was Babylon. He, he's the one that came into Jerusalem and took it over. So here you have another rendition. As the Babylonians come in and Jerusalem falls because they didn't learn their lesson. Despite God trying to get their attention, despite the numerous prophets that came, he did not get their attention. And so the city is taken. Uh, Jerusalem is eventually burned. The temple is eventually burned in 586 B.C. And the people are sent into exile. And so you can see on this first map here the exiles in Babylon that little red arrow, they head up to the north, and then they go east over to Babylon, the Euphrates-Tigris River area, Mesopotamia. If you um, ha have your storybook, you probably don't, but this next image is the map that we used quite a lot in the beginning. And so let's, let's review a little bit of, of what we know. Remember that uh, up here on our map, we have... the people's constant rebellion and refusal to be faithful. He had tried to prevent this by extending the enforcers of the covenant, God's cops, the prophets, and the people didn't listen. Jeremiah preached for 40 years to Jerusalem, to Judah, and for 40 years told them if they did not change their ways, the Babylonians would come and destroy the city. The people laughed. God would never destroy his favorite city. God would never destroy his temple where he dwells. The prophet Ezekiel tells how when the people were exiled, God's presence left the temple and actually went into exile with them. That's an interesting thing all by itself. And so that's what's going on in our contrast. And so Daniel takes place Historically, we're looking at this timeline here, we see that Daniel is about 605 to 536 B.C., all right? So I know all you, all you history buffs are in the room, right? <laughs> One of you? Yep, that's about it. All right. Nebuchadnezzar, you can see up at the top, he is going to be the king for the bulk of this time period. And then Belshazzar, and then we'll get next week probably to Cyrus and Darius, etc. But look who's right under Daniel. Jeremiah. Okay, 
and he's underneath him, Ezekiel. And you see down at the bottom, Daniel's deported in 605. Jerusalem's destroyed in 586. And then later on in 536, the temple is rebuilt. It begins to be restarted, etc., with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther coming into play. So what I want you to keep in your mind this morning is that this time period of Daniel stretches from 605 to 536 B.C., and Daniel is coming on the scene, and God is going to use him as a prophet in the midst of what we're talking about, in the midst of Jerusalem being destroyed and wiped out. And so the book of Daniel picks up during the time of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon. Um, the book of Daniel actually starts before, this is what you've got to keep in mind, it starts before Jerusalem is burned. All right? What happened was Nebuchadnezzar came in three different waves. Okay? There was one in, in uh, 605 B.C. There was one in 597 B.C. And there was one in 586 B.C. And in the first one, Daniel was taken. In the second one, Ezekiel was taken. In the third one, the city and the temple were taken. All right? And so he's taken in the beginning. So while he's in um, Babylon, at first as a teenager, Jerusalem hasn't been fully destroyed yet. All right? So we get into the book, and now we want to look at what's Daniel's problem. Okay? Because Daniel's got some problems. All right? What is the deal with Daniel being in Babylon? Well, here's the problem. The problem is that the promised land is far away. Remember the map I showed you, right? Way over on the left side is the promised land. Way on the right side is Daniel. So Daniel's not in the promised land anymore. That's a problem. Why is that a problem? Why does it matter if he's in the promised land? Because it's the promised land, right? It's not where God wants him, right? God wants him in the promised land, all right? So what's going on with God's promises? How can God's promises be greater than your problems if Daniel's problem is he's not in the promised land? That means in order for God's promises to be greater than the problem, then God's got to get them back to the promised land. Okay, which will be next week. All right. So Daniel's problem is the land, the promised land is far away. His other problem is the pagan land is his new home. The pagan land is his new home. Well, guess what, guys? We're not in the promised land either. Despite what everybody thinks in the American dream, America's not the promised land. The promised land? The promised land refers originally to this particular piece of land. Okay? But then through scripture, it also becomes metaphorical related to what will become God's kingdom and eventually what we've called in the New Testament uh, heaven. And so the promised land, okay? And Hebrews talks about this as well. So Daniel's problem is like your problem. You're not in the promised land. Daniel's problem is, your, is like your problem because Daniel's in a pagan land. Guess what? So are we. We're in a pagan land. Just look around you and look what everybody does. Read the news. Read the newspaper pagan rulers are indoctrinating and enculturating. Look around you. Everybody's trying to get you to follow their system of thought, their worldview. All right? That's what people are always trying to do. Same thing with Daniel. The first thing they're going to try to get to him to do is change his diet. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Faithfulness to God will be very difficult and maybe even impossible if you're going to keep your life in this situation. Thus, Daniel is in a crisis of belief. You remember two weeks ago we talked about the seven realities of experiencing God and the crisis of belief? Look at the screen again real quickly, okay, with this diagram, okay? The crisis of belief is in step number five. That's where Daniel was, okay? All of us go through this phase because we go through all of these. 
So let's take a quick walk through this. This looking this time, not at Hezekiah like we did a couple weeks ago, but with Daniel. Reality number one is that God is always at work around you. So God was at work before Daniel got there. Really? In Babylon? God was at work in Babylon? The pagan, pagan, pagan country of Babylon with the pagan Nebuchadnezzar? Yep, God was already at work there. Reality number two. God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. At some point, Daniel had to make a decision. Now listen, young people. Daniel was taken away as a hostage as a teenager. We don't know the exact year, maybe 15 or 16, as a teenager. Before he left as a teenager, he had already made a commitment to God and had very strong convictions, as we'll see in a moment. You don't wait till you're 18, 19, 20, 25, 40, 38. You don't wait. Daniel made his decision early, and he cemented it in, he locked it in, and he lived his life in faithfulness to God. Reality number three was God invites you to become involved with him in the work. God had worked in Daniel's life to position him and put him in a place of leadership to serve as his ambassador and representative. We're going to see that throughout the book of Daniel. That as Daniel grows up, as Daniel gets older, Daniel is put in a place of prominence, of leadership, of administration, even in a pagan country. And God uses that. Others have been given the same choice, and now Daniel is put in this position. Reality number four. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. Daniel had to decide. Would he allow God to be his king or have Nebuchadnezzar as his king? Now, despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was the one making the demands at the moment, despite the fact that you have bosses, employers, you have governments that tell you what you have to do, all right, you got to decide who's your real king. You'll see in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel didn't obey the king. When the, when the law was contrary to God's word, Daniel did not obey the king. You see, you obey the laws of the land as long as they don't contradict the laws of God. And then you've got to choose who's your king. If you follow the laws of the land, then God's not your king. If God's your king, you follow his laws, and that's going to put you in direct opposition to the law of the land, and that could end you up in trouble. Well, so what? Look at Scripture. Look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the hall of faith. What happened to all those people when they followed God? Reality number five. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. This is Daniel. This is where Daniel's at. Daniel was in a major crisis, and he had to decide to trust God or not trust God. Reality number six, you've got to make major adjustments in your life to join God. Daniel has to choose to be faithful to God and his convictions. This meant potential death. In chapter 1, we'll see in just a moment, his choices could lead to his death, his refusal to eat the food that they're offering. Reality number 7, you come to know God by experiences, you obey him, and he accomplishes his work through your life. You've got to put yourself in a position to trust God, for God to show you who he is. One of the reasons that we have such lack of faith in America is because everything is too easy for us. We have too many resources at our disposal. The people that have the most hardcore faith in God are the people around the world that have nothing. And that's because they trust God to provide for their every need. That's why 
That's also why sometimes we see homeless people whose faith blows ours away. Because they might not have anything. And every day they're literally praying that they'll get the food they need for that day. The truth is, I thank God for the food he gives me when I eat. But I don't pray to get my food. I just open the fridge. Or go to the store. Are you all with me? So that's what we're talking about here. So as Daniel obeys God, he sees that God saves him from the enemy. And he would never have seen that happen if he had not trusted God. So let's start diving in to the book of Daniel. And there's no way we're going to cover all this. But we are going to cover huge chunks of the book of Daniel this morning. I want to take you through it. And then we're going to back up and look at uh, some, some key points for us to take away. So Daniel chapter 1. Verse number two says, The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and he put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here what we have is, is that uh, the, the area has been taken over, and they're going to be exported, deported. Go ahead. The chief official gave them other names when they got to Babylon. And so their names are being changed. Their identity is being changed. They're no longer who they were. Babylon is trying to remold them into the image of Babylonians. They don't want them to be Jews anymore. They want them to be Babylonians. So new name. Names mean things in scripture, okay? New foods, new culture, new customs, new clothing, etc. And unfortunately, we know them by their Babylonian names normally. So this is the, the new names they, they give. Um, the name Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar to Daniel and Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So those names, you can look at them and see, Daniel meant God is my judge. Belteshazzar means whom Bel favors. Who's Bel? A pagan god. They're changing their names from names related to Yahweh to names related to their false pagan gods. Hananiah means God is gracious or God's gift. His new name, Shadrach, means illumined by Shad, the sun god. Mishael means who is like God or God is great. And Meshach means who is like Shak, the love goddess. Azariah means God is my helper. Abednego means servant of Neg, the fire god. So you can see they're changing them. They're trying to change who they are and their identities. And so here we are in Daniel chapter 1, and, and these teenage boys come in, and they're given before them this spread of food. The king is going to, for three years, he's going to uh, put them in a position of, of testing and, a, and of education so that they can become new leaders. What's he doing? He's re-educating them. What did Hitler do? He re-educated the children. What did uh, John Dewey argue for the public school education? It was about re-educating the children. Get the minds of the children, and you've got the next generation. That's what it's all about. So they sit down at the table, and the first thing put in front of them is this spread of food, magnificent spread of food that the Jewish boys, they can't eat because God had given them rules and laws. And what those specifics were or why, we're not really sure of all that, honestly, except for one thing. God had said it was so that they would be distinct and separate from everybody else. And so now they have a choice. Well, then, here's all this food I've never eaten. We don't eat this because we're God's people. But we're not in the promised land anymore, so maybe we can. Yeah, but the reason we don't eat it is so that everyone will know we're God's people. 
what did he do? Daniel had conviction as a teenager. He was only a teenager, guys. He said, no, we can't eat that. You remember where I said he was taken to? Babylon. Babylon. They're warriors. I told you about how huge the city was. The walls. Nobody's getting in. What it says is about because nobody's going to mess with Babylon. And here you are being brought in with all these other people. Everybody else is eating the king's food. And you're going to stand up and make a scene and say, no, um, I mean, they were polite about it. Can we just have vegetables? None of the king's food, please. Test us on this. Wait and see. Do we look better or do we look worse? Because here's the deal. If God had given them their food, they were putting his life at risk, too. See, when you make a decision like this, it's not just you that's affected. You're putting other people's life on the line. These boys were putting other people's lives, Babylonian people's lives, on the line. What's his job? His job is to take these new people, take them from a foreign land, and make sure that the food he gives them helps them become strong so that the king can use them in his court system, his administration circle. Well, if they don't become strong, whose head gets taken off? The guy in charge of them. So they're putting his life at risk as well. Daniel had conviction. Daniel was not going to just go through the motions. He had conviction. That's what, that's what you see in, in chapter 1. Continue on, and we see that in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams. Okay, The other key thing that happens all through the book is the revelations. God gives revelations to pagan people and to his people. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about four empires, about the, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Now, the book of Daniel is taken by skeptics to, to be uh, a laughable or completely reinterpreted. We'll talk more about this Wednesday night in our Bible study at Willow Key. But Daniel is one of the most critical books in the Bible for predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy means predicting what's going to happen. A lot of prophecy in the Bible is not about the far future. It's about right now, okay? Daniel has stuff that is going to be unfolded over hundreds of years, okay? Isaiah has a few places like this also where he names hundreds of years before the guy was even born, Isaiah names Cyrus that will be the king of Persia that will let the people go back home. We'll talk about that next week. But here in Daniel, we have God laying out for him who the next four empires are going to be. Think about that. What's going to happen to them? And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, what's going to take place. Yeah. Question? All right. <clears throat> we continue on in the book and we get to uh, chapter 3 of the book and then we see that uh, not Daniel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a crisis of belief. The statue, as you saw in the intro video, is built 90 feet high. Nebuchadnezzar. Worship Nebuchadnezzar. And these three young men say, no, we can't do that. We're not going to be able to do that. So what is the penalty for, for not doing that? This is several years after, okay? The Bible doesn't tell you how many years take place, but we have, by reading various aspects, we can figure some of this out. 
And so this is several years later after chapter 1 had taken place and this image that is, is made for Nebuchadnezzar is trying to make a name for himself. That's what they tried to do in, in uh, the Babel, the Tower of Babel. And Babylon is from Babel in Genesis 11. And so it's about making a name for yourself, becoming famous, you being famous. And we already know from Habakkuk 2.14 and from Isaiah that God is about making his name famous. That his name would be spread across the whole earth like the waters are spread across the earth. So all people would know about him. We saw that in the Exodus, etc. And so they have a, a challenge. You can see in the picture, this is probably not exactly how it happened, but the three guys standing, you know, we're not going to bow down. And they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Test of faith. Their convictions hold up. They're thrown in. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down. Our God will deliver us. But here's the thing. They said, even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. They're not guaranteed to be saved from the fire. You're not guaranteed to be saved from the persecution. Jesus said, you will be persecuted. Paul said the same thing. You're not guaranteed to be delivered in this life from the situation for having strong convictions. If the government makes a law that goes against the scripture and I refuse to follow the government's law because I follow the scriptures instead, I'm not guaranteed to be delivered from whatever the government wants to do to me. I'm not guaranteed that. I might be. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, but how many others were not? Again, go read Hebrews chapter 11. They were sawed in half. They were killed. They were skinned. That's what happened to the people when they went against these world empires. In chapter 4, there's another vision given of a tree. And again, it's a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. We talked earlier about how God warns and, and try to get their attention. God is actually trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, a pagan king of another empire, trying to get his attention. He's trying to get him to realize, listen, I have put you in this place. I have put you as the king of this empire, and you need to stop going against my empire. Because you're going to lose. Because my empire See in that in that other image of of the statue. See the the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had is the statue where um, these different kingdoms are represented. And then the head of gold in that first statue was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to be uh, that. He wanted the entire thing to be him, all gold, all him. And in uh, that first vision, there was a rock that comes out and it knocks down everything else. You see, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want that. So he wants to be the kingdom that lasts forever. But that's not going to be. The only kingdom that will last forever is God's kingdom. That's why, people, you cannot put your complete allegiance and trust and faith in any human government, country, nation, empire, etc. None of them will last. It's got to be a complete allegiance to God and his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar evaluates this situation. Nebuchadnezzar does not heed the warning. And Nebuchadnezzar is then cut down as he was warned he would be so that he would be humble. The scripture says if you don't humble yourself, God will humble you. And so he's cut down to be humbled. And chapter 4 of Daniel tells us all about that. We continue on through the, the book of Daniel. We get to Daniel chapter 5, and Nebuchadnezzar's off the scene now. He's gone, okay? 
he had not uh, humbled himself, and so God uh, forced him to be humble, and then after he realized and recognized God, then God put him back in power. See, God takes down and God puts up. Do you really believe that? God takes down kings and puts up kings. God takes down presidents and puts up presidents. That's what Daniel says. God clearly took Nebuchadnezzar off the throne. He made him insane for seven years. And then he put him back on the throne after that seven years was up when he humbled himself. Continue on in Daniel chapter 5. In, in Daniel 5, there's a, a new Kai on, on the scene. And Belshazzar gets his handwriting on the wall. He's got another miraculous event taking place. They're having this big party that's not cool, and they're disgracing God at the party. And so all of a sudden, this hand comes out of nowhere. And imagine right over there between the two lamps, all of a sudden, a hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. That's what takes place. He was so scared. If you read the text and evaluate what it actually means in, in like the Hebrew, it probably means he like messed his pants and had to go change this type of thing, you know? That's how scared he was. So, yeah, you don't quite get that in the English translation, but I don't know why they don't translate it like that. But anyway, so, and the writing on the wall basically said, I've evaluated you, I've judged you, and you stink. So I'm taking you out. That very night, that very night, the Persians, they diverted the water in the river. And while they were all having a huge party to Marduk, they didn't have to dig under the wall. They didn't have to go over the wall. They, they got the water to get out of the riverbed, and they went right through the city, right through the middle of the city, and they took out Babylon that very night. No more Babylon. And they thought they were so great, so mighty, so strong. Kingdom gone. To continue on through Daniel, that's the writing on the wall, and then we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6, everybody knows chapter 6. Daniel in the lion's den, right? Daniel was no kid. He was no teenager in the lion's den. He's 70 or 80 years in the lion's den. This is way late in the story. He's an old man. He's been faithful to God all this time. And they make a law. You can't pray except to the king of Babylon. I'm not going to have it. Pray to Yahweh every day. I'll do it again today. I'll suffer the consequences. God shuts the lion's mouth. Does God have to shut the lion's mouth? No, he doesn't. Revelation. The voice of the martyrs, the blood of the saints that have been killed, is crying out. What does that mean? Well, obviously, he didn't save them in their situation. They died. But here, because God has a point, he's not done with Daniel yet. He saved him from the lion's mouth. Now, the thing with these stories in the Bible is that they're not kids' stories. If you actually think through and would believe this, it would give you security and comfort at night when you're afraid, when your life's all a mess, and you realize that God's promises are greater than your problems. Do you really believe that God can have you in a room with a dozen hungry lions? the rest of the story, once Daniel was taken out, the guys were twisted and thrown in. They were attacked and beaten before they hit the floor. The lions were hungry. 
but they didn't touch Daniel. Why? Because God closed their mouths and didn't let them. Because God controls not just kings, not just empires. He even controls the kingdoms of beasts that we're in. That's chapter 6. We continue on in, in the book of Daniel to 7, and we get another vision. Okay? These dream visions. And you've got these really weird-looking animals. Okay? These animals actually correspond with chapter 2. Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 are basically the same thing. All right? And it corresponds with these empires that are coming. All right? They're going to be the next world empires. We continue on. See, 7 through 12 is all these visions that God gives to, to Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 is about a ram and a goat. And uh, the male goat comes from the west. It doesn't touch the ground. Um, there's a single note of a horn. It attacks the ram with rage, and it breaks its horns. And the male goat becomes strong, and its horn is broken. And it's replaced by four more horns. These horns represent kings and powers, okay? It's all this vision, this metaphor. And one of the little horns grows up and exalts himself against the sacrifice in the temple. You see in the next one this image of just the, the, the goat and the ram, and they're, they're butting heads. They're coming to war against each other. That's chapter 8. Continue on in Daniel. All right, and we put these together, and you can see these all relate together. Okay, the vision of chapter 2, the vision of chapter 7, the vision in chapter 8, and the empires over here on the right, and how they all fit together. And it's that little stone, that rock at the bottom of the screen on the left side, that God's kingdom is the only one that's going to last. All the rest of these are just temporary, set up and tear down. We continue on again, and we see in Daniel 9, Daniel 9 is an amazing passage of scripture. Because in Daniel chapter 9, you see how, how Daniel begins to put these pieces together. He says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, a Mede by birth, who was ruler over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood, get this, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah, the prophet. The number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem will be 70. Now that verse right there, you guys, you need to hone in on, on chapter 9, verse 1 right there, um, of what he's saying about Scripture. Okay, Daniel is saying the books. What books is he talking about? He's talking about the Scripture. He's talking about God's word that's been written down. Specifically here, he's talking about the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, God's revelation to Jeremiah. So we're talking about the book of Jeremiah. So Daniel has access to the book of Jeremiah, or at least parts of the book of Jeremiah. And Daniel knows what Jeremiah said. Well, how is that? Well, Daniel was taken from Jerusalem. And where was Jeremiah preaching? Jerusalem for 40 years. Daniel knew what he was preaching. And now he's thinking through what's going on. He's like, Jeremiah said that God told him it would be 70 years. Now, by the time you get to chapter 9 here, you got about 66 or more years that have already passed. So what's Daniel thinking? We're getting to the end. We're getting close to the 70. So I said 66 or more years. Well, what does that mean? He's been there that long. When did he go? As a teenager. So how old is he? 70s or later. He's an old man. So I turned my attention to the Lord God, to seek him by prayer, petition, and fasting, and sackcloth and ashes. So he goes to God, 
I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. Ah, Lord. Now look at this prayer. The great, awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenants. He's a promise keeper, right? With those who love him and keep his commands. And then this is what he says. We. He didn't say I. He said we. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our leaders and our fathers and all the people of the land. We haven't done this. Who's the we? The whole nation of God's people, Judah, even Israel before. We have not listened. You tried to get our attention, and we didn't pay attention. We didn't. We ignored you. We became like the Egyptians, hard-hearted, like Pharaoh. And what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? God. And what happened to God's own people when they get hard-hearted? Are they exempt? We continue. And at 920, he says, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh, my God, concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifice. So God shows up to him. God is going to reveal himself to him. As, as Daniel has gone and sought the face of God, as he's confessed the sin of him and the people, the shame that they are now in. It wasn't on the screen, but I want to read you verse number 8. He says, by the way, uh, Yahweh is only um, in this chapter in the book of Daniel. Chapter 9 is the only place uh, that it is. And it's eight times all packed together. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh is the name of the covenant-keeping God that made a covenant with Abraham and these promises. And he's calling on God, and he's saying this. He says in verse 8, he says, Lord, Yahweh, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. He says, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Though we rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us. And so we're rebellious, but you are compassionate and forgiving. Verse 11 said, all of Israel has broken your law. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. What's the promised curse? Deuteronomy says that if you turn away from God, God's people, that they would be cursed. What's happening to them right now? The curse is being fulfilled. God's law is not broken. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. Every bit of it would be fulfilled. The smallest letter. The people have been given grace after grace after grace. And eventually, justice has got to happen. And that's what's going on. So, he talks about the 70 weeks decrees of the people in the holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up visions and prophecies, to anoint the most holy place in Daniel 9.24. And he tells them to understand these, these end things, these coming things. And so the rest of Daniel 9, 10, 11, and 12 is, is more uh, future visionary um, stuff. But what I want to do now is see how these all fit together. And so I'm going to skip to the whole next thing there. The book of Daniel is a, a chiastic structure. No, If you look at what the, the book looks like, the structure, okay, 
I know I'm teaching you a lot of stuff today, but there's a reason for this. And this is why deep studies of scripture pays off. Okay? A chiastic structure is, is this, uh, this inverted parallel system. If you look at this, what you'll see is that there's the, the talk of exile in, in one. These are chapter numbers in Daniel. In chapter 1, the exile, and then chapters 10 to 12, a return from the exile, the resurrection from the dead. In chapter number 2, the four kingdoms, um, and then in chapter 7 through 9, the four kingdoms again are shown. In chapters 3, you see the deliverance of the fiery furnace, and in 6, the deliverance of the lion's den. And in 4 and 5, the humbling of both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Right in the middle of the book is this humbling of these pagan kings. What is God about? God is about bringing his name and his fame to the world. So let's go back to Daniel's problem. Daniel's problem. The promised land is far away. The pagan land is the new home. Pagan rulers are trying to indoctrinate and acculturate him. Faithfulness to God will be very difficult. Maybe even impossible if you want to keep your life. A crisis of belief. So in chapter 1, he's tested with the food and the faithfulness. Do I keep the day-to-day rules? Your life is about your day-to-day choices, your minute-to-minute choices. God has set up those rules to teach his people to think. His friends are tested, as I mentioned in chapter 3, regarding how to worship. And Daniel is tested in chapter 6 regarding who to pray to. How you worship matters. Who you pray to matters. The choices you make each day matter. So what do we learn from this? We learn that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereign means he's in control, he rules, and he reigns. He is king. He's sovereign over all of history. How do we know this? Well, because he says who the next kingdoms are going to be, and it actually happens. After Assyria is Babylon. After Babylon is Persia. After Persia is Greece. After Greece is Rome. It's all in the book of Daniel. Yes, sir. Is America? No, they're not in there. No, we're not in there. We're not in the Bible. And one of the reasons for that is he's only dealing with that section of the world over there. So, yeah, we're like nowhere in there. So, in this crisis of belief, God's sovereignty... His sovereignty over history is demonstrated in the whole book. His sovereignty over rulers is shown in how he sets up and takes down Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's already there. He thinks it's because he's awesome, but no, it's because God put him there. God takes him out for seven years and puts him back in. What does that show you? God is sovereign over the nations. Chapters 2 and chapters 7 through 9 show these four different visions with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and how he's sovereign over all of history. Chapters 4 and 5 give the specific examples with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar the only kingdom that will last according to Daniel is the kingdom of God, that rock. Sovereignty is seen in the revelation that he gives. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12. says, The whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. My what? My promise to you. What is, what is Daniel praying? He's praying, God, enact your promise now. The 70 years are about up, God. Come and do a work. Remember what I've taught you so many times? When you read the word remember in the Bible connected with God in a prayer, he's saying act. He's not saying he forgot. He's saying, God, it's time to act now. Remember. God remembered Noah. He acted for Noah. God's promises. Okay? 
God's promises. God's promise is greater than Daniel's problem. So not only about God is sovereign over history, but God's servants suffer. You need to understand that. God's servants suffer. Daniel and his friends, nor Ezekiel, nor other faithful believers are exempt from the hurt, the suffering, the consequences of the failures and sins of the people of God as a whole. Daniel was a faithful, faithful righteous man, but he got taken into exile. He wasn't left in Jerusalem. This is, remember, this is before Jerusalem was burned. Okay, It was the first deportation out of the three. He was not left there. He was taken. But well, how come he was so faithful he didn't get left there in Jerusalem? Because God had a plan. Maybe he would have been destroyed if he was saved. Because seven years later he got burned down. Or maybe the whole plan all along was simply to get him into Babylon so he can be part of this group of people so he can become an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar and then to Cyrus. Because God had a plan. Because God wanted to show, this is crazy, craziest of all things. Why does God show Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, what he's going to do with the rest of the world? Before he started to Daniel. God's servants suffer. The corporate sin that Daniel prayed about in Daniel 9 comes to bear on the citizens of the kingdom. In other words, your sin hurts other people. When bad people sin, good people pay the price sometimes. We're not exempt. If a hurricane runs through Orlando, yeah, you heard me, right? Hurricane runs through Orlando, right? Just because you're a follower of God doesn't mean you're exempt. Now, God might bubble-proof your house, but he might not. Either way, it does not have any reflection on whether or not you are a follower or a righteous person in God's eyes. Neither one. Jesus talks about the same thing. He talks about the, the, the Tower of Siloam. It falls. He says, you think the people that died in that were any more unrighteous or righteous than everybody else? You think the people in 9-11 and those towers were necessarily any more righteous or unrighteous than anybody else? No. What? Randomly? No, not at all. There's nothing random about it. There's nothing random about it. You just don't know why you're there necessarily. Did God do weird things during 9-11 that some people ended up not going to work that day? Yep, he did. And most of those people think that God saved them for some reason. Right? But he also let other people die in that situation. Yeah, well, I can't figure it out. You're right, you can't figure it out. That's the whole point of the crisis of belief. Right? If Daniel didn't have Jeremiah, then he wouldn't have been able to figure out the 70-year thing either. But God was good enough to give him the 70-year thing so he could figure out that, oh, this is almost done. Yes, sir. Super. judges sin. God judges sin. Including the sin of his people, his children, even the sin of believers. Chapter 1, the righteous, as I said, suffer alongside the unrighteous in this world, whether it's a national judgment of God or, or a cultural cause and effect like the health problems we face in America due to our poor eating and exercising habits. Okay? Guess what? Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're exempt from having health problems. Especially if you eat junk. Right? Cause and effect. 
chapter 4 and 5 demonstrate the judgment of the pride, the idolatry, and the defaming of God's glory of the true rulers. God judges sin. God will not share his glory with others. God will get the glory in the end. God's fame is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the earth, according to Habakkuk 2.14 and Isaiah. Know how Daniel, like others before him, takes ownership of the sins of the nation and confess them and call on God to remember his people of covenant and to act. We have a lot of sin in our nation, past and present. Sometimes as Christians, evangelical Christians, we distance ourselves from it and say, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. That was back then. But what you see in Scripture, not just with Daniel, you see it with Ezra and Nehemiah, you see it in multiple places in Scripture, they took ownership of the whole corporate sin and confessed it, and even it put themselves in as part of that whole realm of sin that took place. America's got some bad sins in the past. Needs to be confessed. God saves through judgment. After judgment comes restoration. This is the hope held out to all the pages in all the pages of Scripture. The hope that after judgment and justice are meted out, there will be a reconciliation and a salvation for those who believe. Uh, salvation and deliverance is seen in Daniel in chapter 3 through the fiery furnace. They don't die. In chapter 8, or 6, I mean, in the lion's den. In chapters 10 and 12 through the future that God's going to bring this, this hope, this resurrected hope. Not all believers are delivered, as I said, from the immediate, but all believers are delivered from the future, from the future judgment and from the future death that awaits. Dr. Hamilton, James Hamilton, has a, a book, and he argues in his book that the whole theme of Scripture is that it's salvation through judgment. You see this all through the prophets. The judgment comes, and after the judgment, you get the big hug. After the spanking, you get the big hug. Why? Because justice has to be meted out. Because you've got to learn that you're not cast off. You're still, when you're God's people, part of his family. Okay? It is for correction. The discipline is short-term. It's for correction for a time so that long-term you will be made into the image of Christ. The work he started in the Epona Philippians, he promises to continue. His promises are greater than your problems. If you have given your life to Christ, then he has promised to make you like Christ. And if you resist that, it will be more and more difficult in your life. God's promise greater than your problems. His promise is greater than Daniel's problems. His promise is greater than your problems. His promise is that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. The ironic thing about what took place when Babylon came is that God's presence left the temple and went to Babylon with his people. God went into exile with his people. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. says, if I go to the Father, I'll be back to get you so that I can turn your attention to you. Promise. His promise is greater than your problems. This is why believers all over the world have gave their lives for the gospel, to give their lives. Because they literally viewed it as, you can take my physical life, but that's all you can take. That's the worst you can do to me. So bring it on. So that he'd be a light to Jesus. 
that the glory of God be spread. And if I have to die in the process, so be it. So be it. Take me home, Lord Jesus. That's what we need to do. That's how we need to live our lives. Because God's promises are greater than your problems. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. My, you have revealed yourself so mightily. Yes, there's so many times when we wish you had told us this or that or more of this, but you have revealed yourself sufficiently, God. We are without excuse. We confess our sins, Lord, as, as a people, as a nation, as a, as a church group even. We fail, we falter, we struggle. We're in crisis of belief, God. Help us. Show yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to, to believe and to trust the, the words that you've given and recorded in the scripture. God, I pray for believers this morning, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. In the example we see in Daniel, a man of conviction and unwavering faithfulness to you, Lord, that we would be like that we rely upon your promises despite whatever problems we might be facing, realizing that your promises are greater than our problems. For those who might not be sure, Lord, where they stand today, or not sure of these things you've talked about, I pray that you would work in their hearts and minds, Lord, to show them, to convince them, to draw them to yourself, Lord, so they can realize that they do need to be part of the people of God. And then the problems of this world, they don't go away. 